Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is from our The Time Is Now series, which walks through the book of Nehemiah. We hope this message will be an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. And let's take our Bibles this morning and let's go to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 13, and we are... Uh, we're very close to, uh, to being done with our series, and unfortunately, um, I'm, it's, uh, that's unfortunate to me. I'm, I'm, I've enjoyed this series. I, uh, I love planning our series for the year, and I, um, I usually plan out what I'm preaching uh, for most of our Sundays and Sunday morning and Sunday nights. I usually plan it out. Uh, towards the fall of the previous year, and I remember looking for, forward to Nehemiah. It's a series I've been planning on doing since 2018, and uh, I heard a message from a friend of mine in 2018 out of the passage that we're in this morning, and I thought, man, I want to preach that whole chap, that whole book to our church family, and uh, of course, it's opened up for this year, and we've been in it. This is the 12th message. Next week will be message number 13 and our last one, but I'm super excited because the very first week of June uh, on Sunday mornings, we're going to start a brand new series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and that's a great book. How many of you have read 1 Corinthians before? Man, what a great book, and so much that's there uh, that we can learn from, and so much when you, when you know what was taking place in Corinth and in those early believers and how it correlates with what's taking place in, in our country and in churches now, uh, it's going to be a help. And so I hope you'll plan to be here. Uh, but we're closing out this series. Of course, our study in Nehemiah has been uh, specifically about the character of Nehemiah. You remember with me, we first met him. He's a king's cupbearer, a Hebrew man that's not been raised in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he uh, up until... Uh, up until Nehemiah chapter two, Nehemiah had never lived in Jerusalem. It was just kind of the people of his heritage. Uh, he was a Hebrew uh, by nationality, by, by birth, but he was being raised in the media Persian Empire. If you recall, we know that uh, Israel fell to Assyria and then to Babylon and then to media, the media Persian Empire. And when you look at it, the media Persian Empire, of course, was probably uh, the most lax on the people of Israel. And so it was under the media Persian Empire that the people of Israel were allowed to go back into their, their promised land and into Jerusalem and begin rebuilding. But on one occasion, Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, he made the 850-mile trek east to, to or excuse me, west from Susa to Jerusalem, and he went there and he saw what was taking place. And he came back, and Nehemiah asked him, "Hanani, how's things going?" And Hanani began to share with him a burden, and the burden was, "Nehemiah, our people are not doing good. The city walls are broken down, the gates are burned, the people are living in affliction, and they're actually a, they're a reproach to the name of God." Nehemiah, things are not going well. And of course, Hanani shared that burden with Nehemiah, and Nehemiah began to allow that to affect his heart. And Nehemiah soon was burdened for the people of Israel, wanting them to no longer be in affliction and to suffer and to, to be a reproach to the name of God. And so Nehemiah began praying, God, what would you have me to do? God, what would you want? God, open the door. And sure enough, after four months of praying, God opens the door and this cupbearer moves all the way to Jerusalem and becomes a general contractor. An unlikely story from an unlikely man, and yet we find God doing something great. Can I tell you this morning, just, just real quick, that sometimes some of the most unlikely people for God to use are peop the very people that God uses. Sometimes you may be that person that you may think, ah, God, what could you do with me? God, I just work at, the, at this store. God I, just, God, I just work for the city. God, I just do this. God, I, and we come up with a lot of excuses of why God can't work with us. I'm thankful that Nehemiah didn't come up with excuses. Nehemiah said, God, here am I, send me. And here you have this cupbearer that becomes general contractor. And of course, he becomes general contractor, goes back. And in 52 days, the walls are built. Man, something great takes place. And we discovered... 
Right after the walls are built, of course, they built the walls in spite of much persecution and opposition and many people attacking and making fun of them and, and even uh, coming and trying to physically assault uh, those that were building on the wall. And yet, 52 days go by, they complete the wall, Nehemiah uh, establishes the gates, and then they begin to work on the infrastructure. And, and Nehemiah begins to lead the people uh, to understand that it never was about the wall, it was always about your heart, it was always about you. You see, though Nehemiah went to build a wall, really the entire reason he was there was for the people of God. Nehemiah understood that if the people of God don't have a defense, they're not going to be living for God, and we need to help them build a wall so that they can have a relationship with God, and they can get things right with God. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, you can go read Nehemiah 7 all the way through chapter number 12, they begin to lead the people in a great revival. They begin to lead the people in this revival of seeking God again and, and surrendering their lives to God again and making a covenant with the word of God. God, whatever your word says, we're going to do that. And last week we discovered that the, the, the revival was so great. It was such an incredible revival and celebration that Nehemiah 12.43 reads that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. They had this dedication time where they said, God, we're completely yours. And that, that celebration just echoed through the hills of Jerusalem. And last week, we were challenged from that passage about living out a contagious Christianity, understanding that your life and my life we could live it in such a way that our joy affects people around us. We could live a life for God so much that in, through trials that people look and say, man, what do you have that I don't have? And people on the outside of Jerusalem were looking into Jerusalem thinking, what do they have that we don't have? Well, that celebration, that celebration took place and we saw this last week and we were challenged with that contagious Christianity last week. And Last week, we, uh, we finished Nehemiah 12, and today we're coming to Nehemiah 13. As we come to Nehemiah 13, I just want to ask you a very simple question, and the question is this, what good are walls, what good are walls if you leave the gate open? I want to ask you that this morning, what good are walls if you leave the gate open? Think about it this way. If you built a beautiful home and you welcomed all of your family to your home and all the, the, the plan was to create a place where everyone in your family was safe, felt safe, and they were protected and felt protected. My question is, what good would that home be if you left the front door open all the time? What good would that home be if you left the windows wide open all the time? What good would the protection be if you posted a sign on the outside that said, come one, come all? It wouldn't be any good, would it? You see, walls don't do any good if you leave the gates open. And this morning, what we're going to discover is that what good are city walls if we leave the gate open and invite the enemy in? Don't you notice our passage with me this morning? Just the first nine verses, Nehemiah chapter number 13. Stand with me if you would. <clears throat> Let's go to Nehemiah 13. We're going to begin reading in verse number one of Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse number one. On that day, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written, that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired, hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit, our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this, Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, he was allied with Tobiah, unto Tobiah. And he, Eliashib, had prepared for him, Tobiah, a great chamber, where aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the corn, the new wine, the oil which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests." But in all this time was not I, Nehemiah, writing. All of this time, I was not at Jerusalem. 
For in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem, and I understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all of the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. And thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. Again, this morning from Nehemiah 13, I want us to discover this truth. What good are walls if we leave the gates open? What good are walls if we invite the enemy to come and go as he pleases? And I just want to say this this morning by way of of, of preparing for the message that in your life and in my life, mark it down that when you and I give the devil easy access into our life, when we give the devil easy access into our life, we become, when we become allied with the enemy, we will discover that the greatest decisions can't stand against an open invitation to Satan. I'm going to say that again. The greatest decisions in your life, the greatest spiritual decisions that you make, they cannot stand against you leaving a door open to the devil. You've heard this statement. Give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. Give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. What good are walls if we give the devil an inch? I want to talk with you about that concept this morning out of Nehemiah 13. I think it'll help us. And so let's pray and ask God to speak. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, why don't you just take a minute? Take a minute in your own heart. Ask God to to speak to you. God, please speak to me. And then make a commitment. God, if you speak to me, I'm listening to you. I'll respond to you today. Dear Lord, we're come, we want to come before you this morning. And God, we just want to thank you for the opportunity to come and to be in your house to hear your word. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this passage... Father, I pray that you'd capture our attention. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to tune into your word. I pray, God, that you'd speak into each and every one of our hearts this morning. And, Lord, that we would leave here knowing we've met with you and that we've heard from you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your love for us. And before I close in prayer, God, I do pray that if there's someone here that does not know that heaven is where they would spend eternity, I pray, God, that you'd help them today to put their faith and their trust completely in you. Again, we love you. Thanks for what you're going to do this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You go ahead and be seated. <clears throat> you have heard the statement before, give the devil an inch, he takes a mile. <clears throat> that statement is kind of based upon this concept of what starts out as a pinhole, what starts out as a, as a pinhole can often become a, a gaping breach, a huge opening. I think I've told this story before, but <clears throat> when I was a kid, I think I was probably in maybe about fifth, fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade. Uh, my parents bought a, an above-ground pool for our backyard. Actually, my sister bought it, I think. She saved up and, and wanted an above-ground pool in the backyard. And so we got this above-ground pool in the backyard. And, uh, man, we dug an area out where it would be about a foot and a half, two feet underwater or underground and, and kind of dipped down a little bit. And so that little four-foot pool turned into a six-foot deep pool in some areas. And it is a great thing. I think it's 15, a 15-foot wide pool or something like that, just a big circle pool. And we, I can tell you we have a ton of, ton of memories there. We have a ton of memories. My sister at the time, uh, she was dating a guy that was a bull rider, and uh, he, was, he, he ended up going professional bull riding, but at that time, he was 19, 20 years old, and we'd have these rafts that he would go, and I would sit on the raft like a bull, and he would just shake the fire out of that raft, you know, and, and try to get me off, and just tons of things. My dad, my dad has tons of memories of being out there, relaxing, and having such a great time with his eyes closed, laying on a raft, and then me just cannonballing the fire out of him. And uh, he has great memories of that. He, he, he actually asked me all the time, Dennis, would you please bombard me when I'm relaxing in the pool? But I remember one time, 
One time my mom and I were out there and uh, I think I was swimming and my mom was just maybe doing some work in the backyard and, and she said, oh, this isn't good. I said, well, what's not good? She said, I think there's a hole in the pool. I think there's a hole in the pool. And I went over there and sure enough, there was, water wasn't spraying out. It was just kind of dripping, just dripping out of the lining of that above ground pool. And she thought, well, they make patch kits for it. We'll, we'll get a patch kit and we'll, we'll get this fixed. In the meantime, in the meantime, let's just, let's just put some tape over this on the outside, I think, and we'll just get this covered. Well, she left and I continued swimming. And I thought, man, I'm really gonna help my parents out. Thanks for the laugh, mom. <laughs> See, she knows the end of this story. I thought, I'm really gonna help my parents out. And so I, I went inside and I got a Walmart plastic bag, and I got, who's laughing already? Come on. I got a Walmart plastic bag, and I got a bunch of duct tape. And I thought, I'm going to swim in the pool, and I'm going to put the plastic bag there, and I'm going to duct tape it inside the pool. I'm going to make my own pool patch. And so I went down there, and, and I think by this time, I think mom had come out when I was under the water. I don't remember if you were out there, but I was under the water and hold my breath, had my goggles, and I was, I was taping this, this hole. Now, mind you, water wasn't spraying out of it. It was just an itty-bitty drip. Well, my fifth-grade brain said, if you push on the tape to get it to stick, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make it better. It didn't make it better. Pretty soon, all, all I remember, if that tells you anything, all that I remember is pushing the tape in that plastic bag and thinking I'm going to solve this. All I remember is watching a, what, what was a, an idiot, I mean like a needle point size of light. All I remember is watching that needle point size of light just go and that plastic bag shoot out of the pool followed by my body. <laughs> and I am not lying. That, I, I don't know, 500-gallon pool was emptied like that. And I shot out of this hole underneath the lining of the pool. I shot out of this hole into the neighbor's fence. And, I, and then I began to get blasted by the remaining 300 gallons of water. And I came up choking. I, I, was, I was completely blown away. And I'm like, how am I going to fix this? And I look, and that, that pool was done. It was done. It was, it was split literally all the way down. And I remember thinking, man, they're going to kill me. My sister is going to kill me. And then, then I heard the neighbors and what the neighbors didn't appreciate was 500 gallons of water in their backyard. <laughs> now their backyard was our pool. You know what I learned that day? Something that started as a small little pinhole can really become a gaping breach. I want us to catch a principle this morning, and that's this. That what may be insignificant in your life right now could be catastrophic in days or years to come. I'll say it this way, what starts as an insignificant pinhole can turn into a catastrophic flood. <clears throat> when we come to Nehemiah 13, we're gonna discover that in Nehemiah 13, things have changed. From Nehemiah chapter 12, and we'll see this, I might repeat it a couple of times, but from Nehemiah chapter 12, uh, from verse number 40, uh, 47 in chapter 12 all the way to verse number 6 in chapter number 13, there is um, some un unchronicled years. As a matter of fact, there would be 12 unchronicled years. And so when we come to Nehemiah chapter number 13, we need to know that uh, all the way back to, uh, to Nehemiah chapter number one, when Nehemiah first got burdened about the people of Jerusalem, it was the 20th year of the king. Well, Nehemiah 13, six tells us that for a brief period after 12 years in the 30 and second year, Nehemiah, he went back to Susa or to Shushan. 
Those of you that have been with us through the series, do you remember back at the beginning of the series, back at the beginning of the series, when Nehemiah was talking to the king, remember the king said, Nehemiah, what's your plan? Nehemiah said, I want to go and I want to help the people of, of my heritage. And the king said, how long is it going to take? Remember, they had appointed, Nehemiah said, so we appointed a time. Well, Nehemiah 13, 6 lets us know that that time was 12 years. Nehemiah said, plan on me being gone for 12 years. So after 12 years, Nehemiah, he disappears for a, a short season. Many scholars believe, and I would lean to this because of travel and everything, that Nehemiah's probably gone. He's probably gone for about two years. But when he comes back, when, when Nehemiah travels back to Jerusalem, he finds what we read in chapter 13. Well, what, what happened in chapter 13? Well, on a certain day, Nehemiah 13 tells us that a group of people, they were, lead, they were reading, you can read it there at the beginning, we just read it a moment ago, they were reading in the, the law of Moses, they were reading in the word of God, what they would have as the word of God, the, the books of Torah, probably Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those five books, they probably had those, as well as maybe some Psalms written by um, Moses and different things. So they're reading the law of Moses, and what we read here is that they come across the passage, verse number one, that says that the Ammonites and the Moabites were not to be incorporated, were not to be allowed into the congregation of the Lord. Now, you and I, from the outside looking in, we would probably think, well, that seems a little prejudiced. You know, well, I don't know God to be somebody that wouldn't allow people into the congregation, but we need to remember, and we need to understand this this morning, if you miss this thought, you're going to miss the whole message, okay? That the Ammonite and the Moabite, they were not supposed to be listed among the people of God if they were holding on to their gods. If they were holding on to their gods, they were not to be allowed into the congregation of God. Why? Because God says, I want faith in me and in me alone, right? I mean, that's John chapter six. That's all in, that's John chapters 13, 14, and 15, where Jesus said, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me, except through me. So when we, what they read in the law of Moses was that these people were not to be allowed into the, the people of God. Now, you and I or a person could look and they could think, well, that means that God did not love a whole people group. No, no, that's not what it means. That's not what it's saying. You see, it is not that God did not love these people. It is, God, it is that God expected that if you're going to be a part of my plan, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to do it my way. So for the Moabite and the Ammonite, if you're going to maintain your Moabite status, your Ammonite status, your Moabite gods and your Ammonite gods, if you are unwilling to identify as a person of God and as a child of God and as a, with the people of God, then you are not welcome in the congregation of God. Well, how do we know this to be true? Well, <clears throat> let me give you one name, one name of somebody who we know that was a Moabite that became of the people of God. Her name was Ruth. Remember the story of Ruth the Moabite? Well, okay, so let's, let's just kind of connect some scripture. We're just doing a little Bible study this morning. Okay, we remember, context matters. Say that with me. Context matters. Context matters. You can, buy, you can make the Bible say anything you want. Somebody could come to this passage in Nehemiah 13.1 and they could say, see, God does not love an entire people group. But context matters. Remember Ruth, she was a Moabite and her mother-in-law, Naomi, was in the land of the Moabites, was moving back to the people of Israel and said to her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, go to your people. And Orpah and Ruth said, no, 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 we want to follow you. And Naomi said, no, you are not going to follow me. Go back to your people. And Orpah said, okay, see you later. But Ruth said, you can go look it up, Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Ruth said, no, 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 Naomi. Your people will be my people. 
Your God will be my God. Your land will be my land. What was Ruth doing? Ruth was saying, Naomi, I'm taking off the hat of Moabite and I'm putting on the hat of God's people. I'm believing in God and God alone. So don't let somebody tell you that God loves a certain group and hates a certain group and God cares for a certain group and and picks and chooses from this group and that group. No, 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 no. No, the Bible says in 1 Peter that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the truth is that we still have to come to him his way. I can't come to God and say, God, here's my, here's my, uh, my fruit and vegetables. And God, here, like Cain and Abel, remember that? Cain knew, Cain knew that a sacrifice was needed, but Cain, Cain came with his offering, his way. And God said, no, 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 that's not what I told you. So the people of Israel, getting back to our text, the people of Israel, they were saying, they were reading, the Moabite, the Ammonite should not be allowed into the congregation of God. But what had happened? Well, verse number four. Verse four says that this took place, verse four and five. And this is what Nehemiah came back to. Eliashib, the priest, Okay, he's supposed to be the one that is leading the people uh, that is, that is uh, going to God on behalf of the people. And he's supposed to be the one that is protecting the, the worship within the tent. He's supposed to be the one that's doing this. And what does he do? He goes into the chamber that would keep the offerings, the storage chamber that would keep all the offerings that the people would give to sustain the Levites. Eliashib goes in, takes all of that stuff and throws it out. And then he invites somebody in. Who does he invite in? Tobiah. Well, pastor, what's that? Who was Tobiah? If you go back to the beginning of the book, you find out that it is Tobiah the Ammonite. Tobiah the Ammonite. Those of you that were with us from the beginning, I, I hope maybe you'll do this. I would encourage you to do this this week. Go home and at some point this week, read Nehemiah chapter one all the way through 13. Read, all, read the entire book. You say, pastor, that's a lot of reading. It'll probably take you 20 minutes. Probably take you 20 minutes. Tobiah at the beginning, do you know who the, one of the biggest persecutors of them building the wall was? Tobiah the Ammonite. And yet here we have Eliashib clearing out a room in the, in the church, clearing out a room in the temple and saying, hey, Tobiah, hey, hey, come on in. So here's this priest allied, it says, with Tobiah, allowing him to live in the house of God. And what you're going to notice, and we'll see this in depth next week, But what you'll notice is that over the course of time, Eliashib, not only, not only does he take the offerings out, kick the Levites out and bring Tobiah in, but over the course of time, Eliashib just begins to digress and the people begin to digress and they completely disobey the word of God And what you find in Nehemiah 13 is one bad decision after another bad decision. It's just bad decision, bad decision, bad decision, bad decision. But what I want us to see this morning is it all started, it all started when they gave Tobiah, the enemy, easy access. They gave Tobiah, the enemy, they gave him a key and let him come and go as he please. They gave him a room within the walls when he should have been outside of the walls. And what I want us to discover this morning is the statement that's on the screen, what sometimes what starts as an insignificant pinhole can then turn into a catastrophic flood. Because it's true that if you give the devil an inch, he will take a mile. And when you and I, listen, when you and I allow Tobiah's to have room in our life, you never know the outcome. When we give the devil certain areas of our life, when we allow certain sins 
to become normal place. When we give easy access to sin in our life, it never ends well. I want you to learn this thought with me this morning. So take your Bible, if you would. Notice, first of all, what I'm calling the subtlety, the subtlety of sin. I want you to notice with me the subtlety of sin, how subtle sin is in our life. I want you to see this morning from Nehemiah chapter 13, that the catastrophic decisions of forsaking the house of God, forsaking the offerings of the Lord, forsaking the Levites and their office, forsaking what they had established, again, that we'll see in just a minute, when they forsook all of these things, it didn't just happen overnight. They didn't just end up away from the Lord because of one major decision. No, sin works subtly in your life. How does sin work in your life? Well, sin, it it happens gradually. In our passage, it it happened gradually. Let me me help us out. I, I, I am going to repeat myself on this in a moment. Go with me real quick. I just want you to see this. Go to Nehemiah chapter 13. And uh, verse four and five, or verse five and six, verse four and five, excuse me, they let Tobiah into the temple. Go to verse number 10, verse number 10. This is Nehemiah still speaking. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them for the Levites and the singers that did the work. They were fled everyone to his field. So now the Levites are not serving in the temple. The singers that we set up last week, those singers that were set up 12 years before, they're not serving in the temple. They're not, they're not being involved. Go to verse number um, 15. In those days saw I and Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses as also wine, grapes and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into the city on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. You know what was taking place? Not only had they cast the Levites and singers out and stopped giving, but now they were working on the Sabbath day. Now the people of God were working on the Sabbath day. Go down to verse number 23. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. So here's what's taking place. And again, I want you to see this. By the end of, by the end of Nehemiah 13, when Nehemiah comes back from his two years away, he finds that now that the people are not immersed in the word of God anymore. No, they're not serving in the house of God anymore. They're not giving to the, to the work of God anymore. No, 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 no. Now they're, they're just forsaking the Sabbath day. Now they have cast the offerings out. Now they're allowing the enemy to live within. And I just want us to see and understand this morning that those things did not happen overnight. But what Nehemiah points out is it all started. It all started by allowing Tobiah just to move in. It was a gradual thing. It happens gradually. I want you to see this morning that what took place in Nehemiah 13 and happened incrementally. What started out as small decisions, the decision to let Tobiah just stay a few nights in the temple, that led to another decision and another decision and another decision, but the people, they didn't see it. And Nehemiah comes back and he goes, what are you guys doing? What are you doing? You've forsaken the offerings. You've forsaken the temple. You've forsaken the Sabbath. Hey, hey, why is, why is Tobiah's stuff in the offering chamber? It was a gradual decision. And let me just help us understand this this morning, that temptation in your life, the temptation of sin in your life and my life is often gradual. It's the proverbial frog and water illustration. You know it, if you drop a frog in boiling water, they're going to jump out. But if you put a frog in room temperature water and you begin to slow up, slowly turn up that heat, pretty soon that frog, legs, that frog is cooked and you've got frog legs. It's gradual. And the same is true in your life and my life. Catastrophic things don't happen in our life overnight. I mean, there's some situations that we know, and again, you understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the, the doctor's call or something crazy that takes place in your life. I'm talking about catastrophic decisions that you and I make, and we look back and we say, how did I end up here? Well, you know where it started? 
It started with that text. Oh, it was just a simple, innocent text. But you know you shouldn't have pressed send. Started with that little, you know, it's, it's just a, oh, what do they call it? White lie. You know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's just, it's just a small thing. Starts with just a little bit of dishonesty. Starts with just a, a little bit of neglecting God here and there. And what starts out as small, listen, the devil and temptation and sin in our life, it can subtly creep its way in. How did this happen in Nehemiah 13? Well, it happened gradually. How, how else did this happen? I mean, this downfall of the people to forsake the offerings and to forsake the house of God and to forsake the Levites and the singers and to totally go back on the commitment they had made. Uh, how did it happen? Well, it happened gradually, but also it seemed logical. It seemed logical. How does it seem logical? Let me just say this morning, humanly speaking, many times sinful things can be humanly logical. It makes it makes sense unless you're saturated in the word of God. Think about our passage. If you, you know, if you're the people of Israel, you're the people of Israel and you want to make sure we're, we're finally established. We finally have walls. Let's make sure that the enemy from the east does not overtake us. What do we do? Well, let their ambassador live within our doors. Uh, let the enemy to the east, the Ammonites, well, we don't want them to overtake us. So let's just give Tobiah, let's give him a room. It's logical. Let's, let's just clear out a, a storage room in the, in the house of God. I mean, it's not the main room. It's a storage room. It's where we keep the offerings. It's logical. And, and as a matter of fact, this is actually going to help everybody. Because if we don't have somewhere to store the offerings, then the people, they can save their money. They can save their money. They don't have to give anymore. And if the people aren't giving anymore, we don't have anything to really help the Levites. You know what? The Levites, they can just go back to their families. They can go live at home. They don't need to come and live in the house of God and serve here during their term. They don't need to do that. No, no, no. You know what happened is it all just seemed logical. And if we're not careful, in your life and in my life, sin can bring us to that catastrophic flood because things seem logical. The Bible says it this way in Proverbs 14, 12. He says, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It seems logical. The, the flesh wants it. The heart justifies it. The mind walks through it. I mean, it, seems log it just seems logical to tell that little lie so I can get the promotion. I would make more. I would be able to do more with my family. I would get the extra time off. I mean, it's just, it's just one little, it's just one number on one piece of paper. It's just one little thing that if I just, if I just fudge this a little itty bitty bit, then it, it'll, it'll be okay. It'll all work out. It seems logical to it seems logical to save money and not tithe. That seems logical. And a lot of Christians do pastor you're talking about money in church. Yes, we are. <clears throat> you say why? Because God talks about money. And you know what you and I do what, what was written to the people in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, wherein have you robbed God? In tithes and offerings. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees so many times. He said, hey, you guys do things to the smallest little tenth, to the smallest little degree. Your, your tithe check says $100.32. Instead of, instead of just $101, it's $100.32. You're, you're to the umpteenth degree, but your heart is not in it. You know what you're doing? You're just following that which is logical. Well, it's logical that says, well, I'll hold back this and not give that. Listen, pastor, what are you getting at? I'm getting at this thought that sin, it sometimes is logical. I, I, hate, to, I hate to bring it up this morning, but it's sad to me how many, how many couples end up with a wrecked marriage because of something that seemed logical. And I'm, I'm not in here thinking of anybody right now in, uh, specifically that's here this morning. 
But I, I can't tell you how many people I've, I've sat and counseled. And a husband says, Pastor, I don't know how I ended up in this situation. But I felt like my wife, it, it was logical to me because she wasn't meeting my needs here or the wife says, well, he wasn't meeting my needs here. And so, I be, so my mind began to think, well, I have this coworker and I have the, and, and humanly speaking, it just seems logical. Can I tell you, that's the subtlety of the devil. He says, I, I, I wanna get into your life and I'm gonna make this seem like a logical thing to do. The subtlety of the devil, sin, it happens in our life gradually. It, it can sometimes seem logical, but notice in the passage too, it, the, the main sin in their life, and we're gonna see this right digging in a little bit, it came through close influences. It came through close influences. Now, where do we see this? <clears throat> All right, verse number uh, three, or verse number four, it tells us that Eliashib was allied with Tobiah. That phrase, allied with Tobiah, it means in a close friendship with. But you wanna know something else interesting about Eliashib? Eliashib had a grandson that married the daughter of Sanballat. Now, Sanballat, in our passage, if you went, you go all the way back to chapter number two, the two biggest people that fought against Israel, fought against Jerusalem at this time and against Nehemiah was Sanballat, and Tobiah. And here's Eliashib, very good friends with Tobiah, and he's the, now the grandfather of Samballot. So you say, Pastor, what, what would be the thought with this? Eliashib was, he was, he was family with the enemy. And you know what happens sometimes in your life and my life? Sometimes the closest influences in our life become the very reason we sin. I, I know many people that they begin, to, they begin to let things take them away from God, from their own time with God, from church, for the sake of family. Now, do I believe family's important? Yes. Do I believe there's times that we can miss church and be with our family? Yes. I believe, Pastor, you believe that? Yes. I go on vacations too. I like vacations. I don't like coming home from vacations. How many of you are with me? Man, you're like, how could we book another week here? I mean, we're broke already, but how could we do it? Is there a tent? I remember Hannah and I went to Hawaii years ago and it came down to like the, week, the two days before we were supposed to leave and I was like, do you wanna just miss our flights and pitch a tent on the beach? We could do it. I mean, I know we have kids, but they'll be fine. They've got family. We'll see them, you know, once every once in a while. It'll be okay. Man, I don't like coming home from vacations. I, I say all that to say, listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with taking a vacation every now and then. There's nothing wrong with, with missing church because of a family thing. But when that becomes the habit, it tells me where my priority is. But I'm doing it all in the name of family. I think people should work. I really think people should work. Matter of fact, I, I, I'm a big proponent for what the Bible teaches, that like if you're not working, you shouldn't be eating. Pastor. That's not politically correct this day and age. Oh, I know, but the Bible says it. So that's okay. Now, are there people who are retired? Yes. Retirement, I'm for it. I'm looking forward to it in, I don't know, like 50 years, something like that. But you know what? There's a lot of people that they say, well, well, I just, uh, I've got to work. and I've got to work and provide for the family so I can't make it to, to that church service or that event. I gotta, I gotta get up and get to work. I can't spend time in the Bible this morning. I gotta get up and I gotta get to work. And, I, and pretty soon work becomes the priority. And you know what? Sometimes the closest things in our life cause us to slip away from the things that we know God wants us to have. 
than God wants in our life. He's a pastor. Don't you understand? I've got to, and I'm not, I'm not, understand me this morning. I'm not trying to tread on anybody this morning. Just walk on people. Not at all. But I want you to, I want you to introspectively look at your life and wonder, where are some subtle ways that I've allowed the devil to get, gain access in my life? It happens gradually. Uh, it happens, it happens at times it, it seems logical and at times it comes through close influences. That's the subtlety of sin. But notice secondly with me this morning, the strength of sin, the strength of sin. As I read Nehemiah 13, it's amazing to me to see the impact that one decision had. Notice it quickly with me this morning. The impact that this decision of allowing Tobiah to move in, we read just a second ago, verse 10 and 11, that now the people aren't giving, the Levites and singers, they're, they're not serving. Verse number 15, the, the Sabbath is being neglected. People are actually working, buying, selling, and trading on the Sabbath. They're, they're going through this without any respect to what God had told them about the Sabbath. Verse number 23, now they're intermarrying with the enemy. The very enemies of God, now they're allowing them to be in their homes and welcoming them in their homes. And I just bring up the thought this morning that so many things were affected by the one decision to give Tobiah access into their, into their walls. Their worship was affected. Their Sabbath was affected. Their families were affected. And the fact of the matter is that sin wreaks havoc in a life because sin becomes strong. Once Tobiah got a foothold, that's when you begin to see Nehemiah saying, man, I came back and I realized that Eliashib had let Tobiah in. And after he let Tobiah in, this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And we're going to see it even in more depth next week where Nehemiah says, listen, this one decision literally wreaked havoc in the entire kingdom. What's the point this morning? The point this morning is this, that once sin comes in, once sin moves in, it becomes a wrecking ball. And unless there's a turning back to the Lord, sin just keeps destroying. You ever sat next to somebody when something scary is going on and they cling to you? Have you ever had that happen? Years ago, I was 15, I think, 14 or 15, and we were at Disney World. And I was there with our family and my sister, Dina, the one who, met, who, who bought the pool. Maybe this was vengeance for the pool, now that I'm thinking about it. We were in this brand new ride at Disney World, and uh, the ride at the time, I think it was called uh, Alien Invasion. And this ride, you know, is probably, I don't know, 1996, 1997, somewhere in there. And here I am, just a young teenager, and here's my sister, the one that's eight years older than me. So she was probably, you know, if she was maybe 20, 21. And here we are sitting in this ride. And it's not a big ride where you move around. It's literally a ride where you, like, sit in one spot and spooky, crazy things with aliens happen by you. I'm like 12. I'm like, this isn't real. I understand that. I'm not going to freak out. Not Dina. She's 20. And she's like, that alien's real and it's going to eat me. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating to say as we're sitting there about two minutes in, Jared, about two minutes in, I feel nails <laughs> beginning to dig in my flesh. And at about two minute, the two-minute mark of that, that experience, this alien breaks out of this chamber and the lights go out and it's roaming the room. That's what you're supposed to think. And they have all these speakers and things beside you. And, and then all of a sudden, little air things get spit on you like it's right behind you. And then, then your speaker works and it's like, you know, right behind you. Oh, my sister, she is wigging out. And I have the scar to prove it. Literally, I have a, you see it after church on my right hand. She was on this side. She gripped my arm and she began to, I don't know how she did it, but she began to dig her thumb right there. And literally she just latched onto my arm. And here I am like, I don't know whether to be tough or just punch my sister because this is really hurting. <laughs> and we get done and I'm not exaggerating. I have the scar to prove it. I'm bleeding 
And she's like, oh, did I do that? I'm sorry. That was just kind of scary. I'm like, oh, did I? I didn't. I didn't. My dad would have walloped me. You know what my sister did? She got a grip and she wasn't letting go. You ever seen a canine dog latch onto someone? I've worked with sheriffs, the sheriff's office for years and I've been to canine training. You ever seen a canine latch onto someone's arm and literally drag them out of a bush? If you haven't seen it, look it up on YouTube. Canine police dog dragging bad guy out of bush. It's awesome. That dog does not let go until the, the, the owner, the trainer, the officer working with that dog gives the release word. And then that dog just lets go like nothing ever happened. Once that dog latches on, I've literally seen a dog rip a guy out of the bushes and drag him 20 yards. The grip is amazing. Can I tell you the strength of sin in your life is even greater than a canine on a bad guy. It's even greater than my sister scared an alien invasion and ripping the flesh off of my arm. Listen. When sin gets a hold of your life, the strength of sin is stronger than you or I could ever know. But a lot of Christians, we think this. Ah, I've got it. That's ah, not that big of a deal. Hey, when sin gets a hold of your life, the end result is always devastating. James wrote it this way. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God, he cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, it bringeth forth death. And the word death there means destruction. It brings forth destruction. I see this morning the subtlety of sin, the strength of sin, but I want you to notice lastly, and we're done, the stand against sin. You see, the stand against sin. Notice, if you will, in our passage, we read it just a moment ago. Nehemiah gets back. He finds out Tobiah is living in there, and all of these things have happened. And notice what it says. I came to Jerusalem, and I understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. You know what Nehemiah did? You can see a progression. He gets there and he perceives. This is what the Bible says. I got there and I perceived of the sin. He saw it, but then he didn't just see it. He did something about it. And I want you to know this morning, it's one thing to see sin and know it's there. It is something totally different to deal with sin. And this is what I want us to look at just for the next few moments is the stand against sin. What did Nehemiah do when he saw Tobiah living there and Eliashib and all these decisions? What did he do to deal with sin? How did he stand up against this? And how can you and I stand against sin in our life? Number one, he was broken up by it. He was broken up by it. The phrase he says there, I was grieved sore. That phrase grieved sore, it literally means I was broken up over it. Man, he was heartbroken. Nehemiah was heartbroken by the sin that came into Jerusalem. And this morning in your life and in my life, sin will have a stronghold and it will be a stronghold in your life until you get broken up over it. You see, you'll be, mad, you'll be broken up over sin when, when it matters to you. Unfortunately, today, many Christians, they have a lackadaisical, uh, lackadaisical attitude, a lethargic attitude when it comes to sin in their life. It's kind of like a meh, whatever type thing. It's a, well, I'll deal with this later. It's not that big of a thing. It's a little white, and we begin to pacify. We begin to excuse. We begin to rationalize our sin and to excuse our sin. And I just want us to understand this morning that if we're going to deal with sin in our life, we first off have to be broken up. What's the, second, what's the second thing that he did? He was broken up over it. Secondly, he cast Tobiah out. He cast Tobiah out. You see there, he says, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. You know what Nehemiah did? Man, he went inside that storage chamber that was set up for Tobiah. He just began throwing things out. He took the TV and chucked it out the window. He grabbed that little miniature couch and he threw it out the window. He saw the PlayStation or Xbox, whatever Tobiah had, he threw it out the window. 
You say, pastor didn't have any of that. I know, but you get the idea. Man, he's just grabbing Tobiah's stuff. Hey, this does not belong here. And he began to cast it out. Nehemiah cast out the source. He went, he took Tobiah and all his stuff, and he said, no longer will you live here. You know what Nehemiah was willing to do? He was willing to make the hard decision. A hard decision that says, this does not belong here, and I'm done with this. Can I say this morning that when we allow Tobias to live in our life, that domino effect takes place in our life of one thing after another. And that domino effect will not stop until the Tobias are gone. And sometimes you and I, we fail to have victory in our life because we don't remove the root cause. You say, Pastor, how do I remove the root cause? If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, once you got saved, you already had, you already had forgiveness, forgiveness to confess. We saw it two weeks ago is to say, God, I say the same thing about sin that you say. It's going to wreck my life. And God, here's the hard decision. No more white lies. No more lying on that sheet. No more of the texting that doesn't need to happen. No more of the conversation that's taking me down. No, no, no. God, I'm casting it out. No more Tobias are welcome in my heart. I see he cast out Tobiah third. He cleansed the chamber. He cleansed the chamber. He, decided, he said, hey, you Levites come back in here and make this place holy again. We might call this in your life and my life a renewal or a rededication to say, God, I'm kicking sin out. And God, I want you to be in control again. You see, <clears throat> this morning... There's a, there's, a, there's a teaching out there that says that if you sin, that you lose your status as a child of God and you, you need to get saved again. That's not biblical. Okay, relationship is always there. I've explained it this way. Dennis Fountain Sr., Dennis Fountain uh, Jr., even though we're not senior and junior, but you get the idea. Senior and junior. I will always be his son. I'll always be his son. Now, if I made a very stupid decision, I'm not going to, just so you know. And if I went and I, I robbed a bank, again, I'm not going to. <laughs> I just want to be uh, online. I'm not doing this. If I went and robbed a bank, am I still his son? But I get thrown in jail. Do I have, am I still his son? Do I have the fellowship that I once had with him? No, why? Can't pick up the phone, can't text him, can't call him, can't just go over there, can't see him whenever. The fellowship is hindered, but the relationship is the same. What you and I do when we allow sin in our life, we literally are putting ourselves in a jail cell. We are still a child of God. Relationship is still there, but fellowship is broken. You know what needs to happen is we cast the Tobias out. We cast the sin out. Then we, we kind of refocus back on the Lord. God, I realized that that sin, it had my attention. God, I was not tuned into you. God, I have forsaken you. And God, I'm just turning back to you. I already know forgiveness was mine. When you died on the cross, it came into my life. God, I know forgiveness is mine, but I'm rededicating myself. I'm renewing my perspective, directing it right back at you. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. Hey, hey, let's get this place holy again. And the last thing he did is he brought back in what belonged. How else did he deal with sin? He brought back in what belonged. Hey, bring those offerings back in here. Bring the Levites back in here. Get the singers back. Get the gatekeepers back there. Hey, we've got some things to deal with. You, Eliashib, you not only brought in what was, what was not supposed to be here, you took out what was supposed to be here. And in your life and in my life, what I'd liken this to is the thought that you not only remove sin from your life, you begin to insert into your life things that you know God wants. Begin to put the word of God back in your life. Begin to put people of God back in your life. Begin to put faithfulness to God back in your life. Sin can be a stronghold, but God is stronger. And God helped Nehemiah. We're going to see next week. God helped Nehemiah make these decisions. And I want you to know this morning that in your life, God can help you make those decisions. God can conquer that sin. Here's how Paul said it in Romans. I love it. Paul got done dissecting his own life. And he was like, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And he's going through this wrestling match of, man, I just make stupid decisions sometimes. And all of us would say, amen. 
I'm with you, Paul. Man, I make stupid decisions sometimes. He summarizes it by saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Hey, where is victory going to come from? How can I conquer sin in my life? How can I kick Tobias out of my life? And then he says, I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then that with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. You know what David or what Paul was recognizing? Hey, my victory comes when I'm surrendered to him. I wonder this morning, are there any Tobias living in your life? Are there any little things that it's just subtle? It's just gradual. It's just that, that text, that white lie, that, that little thought that you've allowed to stay there, that spirit of bitterness, that, that lack of forgiveness. I wonder what areas of your, what rooms of your heart have a secret Tobiah living in there. This morning, may we introspectively look into ourselves and say, God, show me if there's any Tobias in my life. And God, help me to remember that victory never comes without the strength of God. Victory, ne- it's, it's ne- God, you and I don't have just this magical power to overcome sin in our life. No, 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 no. No, we overcome sin the same way Paul did when we say, God, I recognize that this is here. God, I, I confess it to you. God, get it out of my life. Put these good things into my life. And God, I recognize that thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory. Thank you for listening to this message. We hope that it's been an encouragement to you. And if you'd like any further information about our church, we'd like to encourage you to visit mlbc.church.